0: chapter 18 of 50 years ago by walter besant this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter 18 law and justice 5344 enactments have been added to the statute book since the queen came to the throne And the figures throw a flood of light upon the progress of the victorian era in order to realize where we were in 1837 we have only to obliterate this enormous mass of legislation in the realm of law there seems then to be little left all our procedure equitable legal and criminal much of the substance of equity law and justice as we understand the words is gone law had a different meaning fifty years ago equity hardly had any meaning at all justice had an ugly sound the local habitation of the courts it is true was then much the same as it remained for the next 45 years the network of gloomy little rooms connected with narrow winding passages which Sir John Soane built in 1820 to 1825 on the west side of Westminster Hall on the site of the old exchequer chamber with an exterior in imitation of Palladio's Basilica at Vicenza. But outrageously out of keeping with the glorious vestibule of william rufus was then the home of law the court of chancery met in a gloomy little apartment near the southern end of the hall here the lord chancellor sat in term time there were then four terms of three weeks each with the mace and crimson silk bag embroidered with gold in which was deposited the silver pair of dyes of the great seal and a large nosegay of flowers before him it was in those days only in the vacations that the chancellor sat at lincoln's inn the master of the rolls and the vice chancellor of england also sat at westminster during the sittings while in the intervals the former presided over the rolls court and rolls yard and the latter over the court which had been built for him on the west side of lincoln's inn hall the three common law courts moreover during term time sat twelve days at westminster and twelve days at the Guildhall, while the assizes were chiefly held during the vacations the high court of admiralty held its sittings at doctor's commons in both the instance court and the prize court practically throughout the legal year and so did the ecclesiastical courts the bankruptcy court was in Basinghall hall street the insolvent debtors court in lincoln's Inn fields with an entrance from portugal street there were then no county courts the ancient hundred and county courts with their primitive procedure had long been disused certain courts of conscience or courts of request had it is true been established for particular localities at the express request of the inhabitants and these were still being constituted in some of the large towns then in london there were local courts with a peculiar jurisdiction such as the city courts which would fill a chapter by themselves and of which it is enough to name the lord mayor's court the sheriff's courts of poultry compter and giltspur street compter both afterwards merged into the city of london court in great scotland yard there was the palace court with the knight-marshal for judge which anciently had exclusive jurisdiction in matters connected with the royal household but now was a minor court of record for actions for debt within westminster and twelve miles round the court had its own prison in high street southwark the marshalsea of Little littledore not the old historic marshalsea which was demolished at the beginning of the century that stood farther north occupying the site of number 119 high street but a new marshalsea built in 1811 on the site of the old white lion once a hostelry but since the end of the sixteenth century itself a prison the Palace Court came to a sudden end in eighteen forty nine owing to Jacob Omnium being sued in it. Thackeray tells the story in Jacob Homnium's Has. Poor Jacob went to court, a counsel for it to fix and choose a barrister out of the four and an attorney of the six and There he saw these men of lore and watched them at their tricks oh a weary day was that for jacob to go through the debt was 217 which he no more owed than you and then there was the plaintiff's costs 11 pounds six and two and then there was his own which the lawyers they did fix at the weary moderate figure of 10 pound one and six now Evans bless the palace court and all its bold verdicts. The sittings of the Central Criminal Court, which was founded in 1834, were held, as they are still held, in the Sessions House in the Old Bailey, rebuilt in 1809 on the site of the Old Sessions House, which was destroyed in the No-Popery Riots of 1780 and of the Old Surgeon's Hall. Where the bodies of the malefactors executed in newgate were dissected the building although sufficiently commodious for holding the sessions of london and middlesex for which it was originally intended as the centre of the criminal jurisdiction of the kingdom was never anything but a makeshift since however its dingy courts have remained the same down to our own times we can the better realize the surroundings of the criminal trials of those days it was here that greenacre was tried in eighteen thirty seven bow street was then in the zenith of its fame and was practically the centre of the police arrangements of london those were the palmy days of the court of chancery reform was as it had been for centuries in the air and there notwithstanding the efforts of lord lyndhurst it seemed likely to remain Practically nothing had been done to carry into effect the recommendations of the Commission of 1826. At the time of Her Majesty's accession there were nearly a thousand causes waiting to be heard by the Lord Chancellor, the Master of the Rolls, and the Vice-Chancellor of England. It was verily a dead sea of stagnant litigation. The load of business now before the court, remarked Sir so Launcelot Shadwell, is so great that three angels could not get through it think what this meant many of these suits had endured for a quarter of a century some for half a century the lawyers to use the current if incorrect phrase of the time tossing the balls to each other one septuagenarian suitor goaded to madness by the law's delay had a few years before thrust his way into the presence of lord eldon and begged for a decision in a cause waiting for judgment which had been before the court ever since the lord chancellor and nearly eighty was a schoolboy everyone remembers miss flight who expected a judgment on the day of judgment and gridley the man from shropshire both are true types of the chancery suitors of fifty thirty twenty years ago it would be wearisome indeed to detail the stages through which a chancery suit dragged its slow length along the eternal bills with which it began and ended cross bills, answers interrogatories replies rejoinders injunctions degrees references to masters masters reports exceptions to masters reports were veritably a mountain of costly nonsense and when we remember that the intervals between the various stages were often measured by years that every death made a bill of review or were still a supplemental suit necessary we can realize the magnitude of the evil the mere comparison of the bills in chancery with the bills of mortality shows that with proper management a suit need never have come to an end there is a story for which the late mr chitty is responsible that an attorney on the marriage of his son handed him over a chancery suit with some common-law actions a couple of years afterwards the son asked his father for some more business why i gave you that capital chancery suit replied his father what more can you want yes sir said the son but i have wound up the chancery suit and given my client great satisfaction, and he is in possession of the estate. What, you improvident fool, rejoined the father indignantly, that suit was in my family for twenty-five years, and would have continued so for so much longer if I had kept it. I shall not encourage such a fellow. As in Butler's time it might still be said, so lawyers, lest the bare defendant and plaintive dog, should make an end o do stave and tail with writ of error, reverse of judgment and demur to let them breathe awhile and then cry whoop and set them on again, in fact, like Jarndyce and Jarndyce, hundreds of suits struggled on until they expired of in inanition. The costs having swallowed up the estate, such were the inevitable delays fifty years ago. That no one could enter into a chancery suit with the least prospect of being alive at its termination it was no small part of the duty of the respectable members of the legal profession to keep their clients out of chancery it was perhaps inevitable that this grievance should have been made the shuttlecock of party that personality should have obscured it that instead of the system the men who were almost as much as victims as the suitors should have been blamed many successive lord chancellors in this way came in for much undeserved obloquy the plain truth was they were overworked besides their political functions they had to preside in the lord's over appeals from themselves the master of the rolls and the vice chancellor they had some heavy work in bankruptcy and lunacy the number of days that could be devoted to sitting as a chancery judge of first instance was therefore necessarily small that this was the keynote of the difficulty was shown by the marked improvement which followed upon the appointment of two additional vice-chancellors in 1841 in that year too another scandal was done away with by the abolition of the six clerks office a characteristic part of the unwieldy machine the depositories of the practice of the court the six clerks and their underlings the clerks in court were responsible for much of the delay which arose The six clerks were paid by fees and their places were worth nearly two thousand a year for which they did practically nothing all their duties being discharged by deputy no one it was said ever saw one of the six clerks even in their office they were not known the masters in chancery were too in those days almost as important functionaries as the judges themselves judges chambers were not then in existence and much of the work which now comes before the judges was disposed of by a master, as well as such business as the investigation of titles, the taking of accounts, and the purely administrative functions of the court. All these duties they discharged with closed doors and free from any supervision worth talking about. They too were paid by fees, their receipts amounting to an immense sum, and it was to them that the expense of proceedings was largely due, the agitation for their abolition, although not crowned with success until fifteen years later it was in full blast fifty years ago at law matters were little better justice was strangled in the nets of form the courts of king's bench common pleas and exchequer were not only at conflict with equity but in a lesser degree with each other the old fictions by which they ousted each other's jurisdiction lasted down to eighteen thirty one when by statute a uniformity of process was established it seems nowadays to savor of the middle ages that in order to bring an action in the king's bench it should have been necessary for the writ to describe the cause of action to be trespass, and then to mention the real cause of action in an actium clause the reason for this absurd formality was that trespass still being an offense of a criminal nature the defendant was constructively in the custody of the marshal of the marshalsea and therefore within the jurisdiction of the king's bench in the same way a civil matter was brought before the court of exchequer by the pretense that the plaintiff was a debtor to the king and was less able to pay by reason of the defendant's conduct the statement although in 99 cases out of a hundred a mere fiction was not allowed to be contradicted but the fact that the jurisdiction of the court of common pleas was thus entrenched upon was less serious than it might have been since in that court the sergeant's still had exclusive audience and distinguished as were the members of the order of the coif it is easy to understand that the public preferred to have their pick of the bar but a much more serious matter was the block in the courts this perennial grievance seems to have then been chiefly due to the shortness of the terms during which alone legal questions could be decided Nisi prius trials only could be disposed of in the vacations points of law or practice however cropped up in those days in even the simplest matter and since these often had to stand over from term to term the luckless litigants were fortunate indeed if they had not to wait for years before the question in dispute was finally disposed of the common law procedure moreover literally bristled with technicalities it was a system of solemn juggling the real and imaginary causes of action were so mixed up together the pleadings required such a mass of senseless falsehood that it is perfectly impossible that the parties to the action could have the least apprehension of what they were doing then no two different causes of action could be joined but each had to be prosecuted separately through all its stages none of the parties interested were competent to give evidence it was not until 1851 that the plaintiff and the defendant Often the only persons who could give any account of the matter could go into the witness box. Mistakes in such a state of things were, of course, a common occurrence, and in those days mistakes were fatal. Proceedings, by way of appeal, were equally hazardous and often impracticable. The exchequer chamber could only take cognizance of error raised by a bill of exceptions, and even at this time the less that is said about that triumph of special pleading, the better. The house of lords could only sit as a court of error upon points which had run the gauntlet of the exchequer chamber but perhaps the crowning grievance of all a grievance felt equally keenly by suitors at law and inequity arose from the limited powers of the courts if there were a remedy of at law for any given wrong for instance the court of chancery could give no relief in the same way if it turned out as it often did that a plaintiff should have sued in equity instead of proceeding at law he was promptly non-suited law could not grant an injunction equity could not construe an act of parliament there were then as we have said no county courts the courts of requests of which there were not a hundred altogether only had jurisdiction for the recovery of debts under forty shillings we have already given an illustration of the methods of palace court which may serve as a type of these minor courts of record indeed with the exception of the city of london which was before the times in this respect there was throughout the kingdom a denial of justice those who could not afford to pay the westminster price had to go without for in those days all matters intended to be heard at the assizes were in form prepared for trial at westminster the record was delivered to the officers of the king's bench common pleas or exchequer and the cause was set down for trial at westminster Nisiprious. in the meantime the judges happened to go on circuit into the county In which the cause of action arose in which event one of them would take down the record try the action with the jury of the county pronounce judgment according to the verdict and bring back a verdict and judgment to be enrolled in due course at westminster in equity things were even worse there was except in the counties palatine of durham and Lancaster, no local equitable jurisdiction and it was commonly said and said with obvious truth that no sum of less than five hundred pounds was worth suing for or defending in the court of Chancery. Divorce was then the luxury of the wealthy, in action for the recovery of damages against the co-respondent, and a suit in the ecclesiastical courts for a separation from bed and board, themselves both tedious and costly after having been successfully prosecuted, had to be followed by a divorce bill which had to pass through all its stages in both lords and commons before divorce a vinculo matrimonii could be obtained there is a hoary anecdote which usefully illustrates how this pressed upon the poor prisoner at the bar said a judge to a man who had just been convicted of bigamy his wife having run away with another man the institutions of your country have provided you with a remedy you should have sued the adulterer at the assizes and recovered a verdict against him and then taken proceedings by your proctor in the ecclesiastical courts after their successful termination you might have applied to parliament for a divorce act and your counsel would have been heard at the bar of the house but my lord said the disconsolate bigamist i cannot afford to bring actions or obtain acts of parliament i am only a very poor man prisoner rejoined the judge with a twinkle in his eye it is the glory of the law of england that it knows no distinction between rich and poor yet it was not until twenty years after the queen came to the throne that the court for divorce and matrimonial causes was created probate too in all matters and suits relating to testacy and intestacy were disposed of in the ecclesiastical courts tribunals were attached to the archbishops bishops and archdeacons the court of arches the supreme ecclesiastical court for the province of canterbury the prerogative court where all contentious testamentary causes were tried as well as the admiralty courts were held at doctors commons it was a curious mixture of spiritual and legal functions the judges and officers of the court were often clergy without any knowledge of the law they were paid by fees and according to the common practice of those days often discharged their duties by deputy the advocates who practiced before them were too anything but learned in the law they wore in court if of oxford scarlet robes and hoods lined with taffety and if of cambridge white miniver and round black velvet caps the proctors wore black robes and hoods lined with fur the procedure was similar to that in vogue in the common law courts but the nomenclature was entirely different the substitute for punishment was penance and the consequence of non-submission excommunication which in addition to spiritual pains incapacitated the delinquent from bringing any action and at the end of forty days rendered him liable to imprisonment by the court of chancery the practical result was that both penance and excommunication were indirect methods of extracting money payments but the whole system was full of abuses and when twenty years later these courts were shorn of all their important functions it was with the universal concurrence of the public until then there were many who shared the opinion of defoe's intelligent foreigner that england was a fine country but a man called doctor's commons was the devil for there was no getting out of his clutches let one's cause be never so good without paying a great deal of money in bankruptcy a severity which was simply ferocious prevailed traders owing more than three hundred pounds and a little later all traders could obtain a discharge upon full disclosure and surrender of all their property but even then the proceedings were protracted to an almost interminable length the machinery was both cumbrous and costly down to 1831 the bankruptcy law in london was administered by commissioners appointed separately for each case by the lord chancellor in that year a court of review was established with the chief judge and two minor judges and this to some extent controlled and supervised the proceedings of the commissioners now a permanent body in the country however the old procedure prevailed but the amount of business done was ridiculously small creditors preferring as they always probably will do to write off the bad debts rather than to attempt to recover them by the aid of the bankruptcy law the system moreover bristled with pains and penalties if a bankrupt as alleged did not surrender to his commission within forty-two days of notice nor make discovery of his estate and effects nor deliver up his books and papers he was to be deemed a felon and liable to be transported for life an adjudication the first stage in the proceedings was granted upon the mere aff- affidavit of a creditor a fiat was issued the commissioners held a meeting and without hearing the debtor at all declared him a bankrupt it was thus quite possible for a traitor to find himself in the gazette and ultimately in prison although perfectly solvent he had his remedies it is true he could bring an action of trespass or false imprisonment against the commissioners he could make things uncomfortable for the assignee by impeaching the validity of the adjudication but in any case a delay extending perhaps over many years was inevitable before the matter was decided insolvent debtors as those not in trade were distinguished were in yet worse case imprisonment on mesne process or in plain english on the mere affidavit of a creditor was the leading principle of this branch of the bankruptcy law and in prison the debtor remained until he found security or paid the anomaly which exempted real estate from the payment of debts had been removed in eighteen twenty five and since then a debtor actually in prison could obtain a release from confinement by a surrender of all his real and personal property although he remained liable for all the unpaid portion of his debts whenever the court should be satisfied of his ability to pay them everything moreover depended upon the creditor he still had an absolute option after verdict and judgment of taking the body of the debtor in satisfaction and the early records of the court for the relief of insolvent debtors show how weak and impotent were the remedies provided by the legislature it was not until twenty years later that the full benefits of bankruptcy were extended to persons who had become indebted without fraud or culpable negligence enough has already been said of the state of the debtors prisons It is sufficient to add here that in the second year of the queen nearly four thousand persons were arrested for debt in london alone and of these nearly four hundred remained permanently in prison it was however in the administration of the criminal law that the harsh temper of the times reached its zenith both as regards procedure and penalties justice then dealt hardly indeed with persons accused of crimes in cases of felony for instance the prisoner could not down to eighteen thirty six be defended by counsel and had therefore to speak for himself now think what this meant the whole proceedings from arrest to judgment were for the matter that they still are highly artificial and technical the prisoner often poor and uneducated was generally unaccustomed to sustained thought the indictment which was only read over to him was often almost interminable in length with a separate count for each offense and all the counts mixed and varied in every way that a subtle ingenuity could suggest defenses depended as largely for their success upon the prisoner taking advantage of some technical flaw which in many cases had to be done before pleading to the indictment as upon his establishing his innocence upon the facts but what chance had an illiterate prisoner of detecting even a fundamental error when he was not allowed a copy of the document in fact in the words of mr justice stephen the most eminent living authority upon the history of our criminal law it is scarcely a parody to say that from the earliest times down to our own days the law relating to indictments was much the same as if some small proportion of the prisoners convicted had been allowed to toss up for their liberty there might further be the grossest errors of law as laid down by the judge to the jury or of fact upon the evidence without the prisoner having any remedy neither the evidence nor the judge's directions appeared upon the face of the record and it was only for some irregularity upon the record that a writ of error would lie a curious practice however gradually sprang up whereby substantial miscarriage of justice was often averted if a legal point of any difficulty arose in any criminal case heard at the assizes or elsewhere the judge respited the prisoner or postponed judgment and reported the matter to the judges the point reserved was then argued before the judges by counsel, not in court but at sergeant's Inn, of which all the judges were members. If it was decided that the prisoner had been improperly convicted, he received a free pardon. It was this tribunal which was, in 1848, erected in the court for crown cases reserved. The outcry against capital punishment for minor felonies was still in full blast. The history of this legislation is extremely curious. The value of human life was slowly raised it had thanks to the noble efforts of sir samuel romilly ceased to be a capital offence to steal from a shop to the amount of five shillings But public opinion was still more enlightened than the laws a humane judge compelled to pass sentence of death upon a woman convicted of stealing from a dwelling-house to the value of forty shillings shocked when the wretched victim fainted away cried out good woman good woman i don't mean to hang you I don't mean to hang you will nobody tell her i don't mean to hang her jurors perjured themselves rather than subject anybody to this awful penalty in 1833 lord suffield in the house of lords declared i hold in my hand a list of 555 perjured verdicts delivered at the old bailey in 15 years for the single offense of stealing from dwelling houses the value stolen being in these cases sworn above the value of forty shillings but the verdicts return being to the value of thirty-nine shillings only human life was then appraised at five pounds but juries were equal to the occasion disregarding the actual amount stolen they substituted for the old verdict guilty of stealing to the value of thirty-nine shillings guilty of stealing to the value of four pounds nineteen shillings here is an illustration a man was convicted at the old bailey of robbing his employers to the amount of one thousand pounds the evidence was overwhelming property worth two hundred pounds was found in his own room three hundred pounds more was traced to the man to whom he had sold it the jury found him guilty of stealing to the amount of four pounds nineteen shillings he was again indicted for stealing twenty five pounds and again convicted of stealing less than five pounds in the remaining indictments the prosecutors allowed him to plead guilty to the same extent in the same way for years prior to eighteen thirty two when the death penalty for forgery was abolished except in the cases of wills and powers of attorney relating to the public funds juries refused to convict prisoner at the bar said chief baron richards to a man acquitted at carnarvon assizes for forging bank of england notes although you have been acquitted by a jury of your countrymen of the crime of forgery i am as convinced of your guilt as that two and two make four and the jury privately admitted that they were of the same opinion in short the severity of the penal code was a positive danger to the community professed thieves made a rich harvest by getting themselves indicted capitally because they then felt sure of escape the sentence moreover could not be carried out it became usual in all cases except murder to merely order it to be recorded which had the effect of a reprieve here are some figures in the three years ended december thirty-one, eighteen thirty-three, there were 896 commitments in london and middlesex on capital offenses and only twelve executions in eighteen thirty four eighteen thirty five in eighteen thirty six there were eight hundred and twenty-three commitments and no executions with the first year of the queen. A more merciful regime was begun. Six offences, forgery in all cases, rioting, rescuing murderers, inciting to mutiny, smuggling with arms, and kidnapping slaves were declared not capital. but it was not until eighteen sixty one that all these blots were finally erased from the statute book among other medieval barbarities the dissection of a murderer's body was not abolished until 1861 but it was made optional in 1832 hanging in chains was done away with in 1834 the pillory a punishment limited to perjury since 1816 was altogether abolished in 1837 the stocks had been generally superseded by the treadmill ten years earlier common assaults and many misdemeanors were on the other hand much more leniently dealt with in those days than they are in our own as late as 1847 a case occurred in which a ruffian pounded his wife with his fists so that she remained insensible for three days yet since he used no weapon he could only be convicted of a common assault and imprisoned without hard labor but it was not perhaps an unmixed evil that the powers of the magistrates were then very limited the great unpaid as they were then universally known were a byword, their proceedings, both at petty and quarter sessions, were disgraced by ignorance, rashness, and class prejudice. Summary jurisdiction was then fortunately only in its infancy. End of chapter eighteen.